You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. We're talking all about healthy marriages on today's show. We have a licensed marriage and family therapist with us. We'll be talking about really showing appreciation within marriage, the best preventative elements for causing problems down the road, how to stay attracted to your spouse, and much more. In studio with me is Thomas Schmier from Healing and Peace Ministries. He, at Healing and Peace, is a Catholic therapist who really integrates both psychology and the Catholics teaching, not just in faith, but also morality as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, we are going to dive into a bunch of great questions. I've been letting people know, okay, we're having a marriage and family therapist in studio. So please send us your questions. And so a number of people wrote in and a lot of the questions had to do with marriage. And then a lot of questions had to do with dating, friendship, the development of adolescence. So this episode will focus on the marriage side, side of it. And for those who maybe might not catch every episode of Trending, be sure to check out RadioTrending.com because our next episode, we're talking about adolescent development, single years, healing from broken family relationships, and much more. So Thomas, you have been in the depths of a lot of work having to do both with marriage, family issues, and same-sex attraction. So we'll pack into some of these today. Sounds fun. Okay, so first I want to start with this first question. And the question is from Cassie, what is the best preventative medicine for keeping a marriage healthy? When I hear that question, I want to talk for the next four hours, and I want to just give a bunch of answers, tell you everything I know. Can't do that. So I'll try to find one thing that will help someone keep their marriage strong. But you need to know it's not one thing, and you have to always be working on it till the day you die. You don't get to quit. You have to keep working on it. But the one thing that I think can really help uh, more than anything else is to stay on top of the problems that build up. So how long have you been married, Timory? I've been married in five months. Five months. Five months of experience here. And, and how <laughs> long did you date before that? Oh, we dated much longer than we had planned. I always have to be careful when I qualify this because the teenagers mm -hmm. will tell their parents, well, Timory dated her spouse for almost six years before they got mm -hmm. married. <laughs> oh, gosh. But yeah, we dated for almost uh, six years. Almost six years. So you've had long enough to have some pet peeves about one another, some, you know, some, some things that one or the other has done oh, yeah, hundreds of times. Oh yeah. Ways we right. do the dishes mm -hmm. and little things, <laughs> right. minor disagreements. And, and that's the hard part is when it happens over and over again. So what happens is we get what are called perpetual problems, which is no big deal. And I'm taking this from marital researcher, Dr. John Gottman, that we have three kinds of problems, solvable problems, perpetual problems and gridlocked perpetual problems. We disagree, he 
guesses, estimates on 69% of everything. That's every marriage, even if it's a happy marriage. Disagree on 69% of everything. Wow, that's huge. Just say that again. So we disagree on 69% of everything within marriages, even healthy marriages. Even healthy marriages. Wow, I think that that's like a big sigh of relief for a lot of people listening. (laughs) I think it is. And so we, we have these perpetual differences. So maybe one person is a little messy and one person's a lot cleaner. And they're going to be that way till the day we die. <laughs> That's like the way I do dishes really annoys my husband. Yeah. <laughs> and then the way certain things are left around the house, you know, I, annoys me little things. Exactly. Like. And that you're laughing about it shows that you're in a happy marriage. It's, it's how we talk about our perpetual differences. And so there are going to be this other category called gridlock perpetual problems. Gridlock is the problem. Um, that you want to stay away from. And it's going to happen eventually. Everyone gets gridlocked on something. And you know you're gridlocked when if that topic comes up, then you're just saying, oh, no. (laughs) You just want to stay away. Don't go anywhere near the topic. You know. uh, You avoid it at all costs. Or it's like mm -hmm. a stalemate. You agree to disagree and you don't approach it. It could be. That's a good, nice scenario. Yeah, that's that's when it looks pretty. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so it's one of those things where you just know your spouse is going to snap at you and you don't quite understand why. But if you go anywhere near the topic. Now, I've had a lot of friends when they've been dating, they will mention, yeah, this issue you know we just know we both disagree and we outright avoid the issue and i'm thinking when you're dating if that's how you're approaching something uh, am i right in saying that's a big hazard sign well yeah and that's that's another sign of gridlock too is sometimes to he calls it stonewalling but Mm -hmm. it's just you, you don't go anywhere near the topic we should be able to talk about these things talk about them comfortably so what i think what i want to give you today is something to help with gridlock And so this is the goal to keeping your marriage happy. And it's to, when you have gridlock, go and talk about those problems when you're both calm. Postpone problem solving. So allow the emotion to die down in the the worst case scenario. Right, exactly. You both have to understand you're not trying to problem solve. And you're just going to, your goal is to understand the other person. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Like we're we're gridlocked. This is a perpetual problem. We're not going to solve it. So let's not solve it. Let's just understand one another. Mm-hmm. And I would think that the intervention is copyrighted. It's called Dreams Within Conflict. And you can find it in Dr. John Gottman's materials. But I want to share at least three questions uh, that are part of this intervention. There are three questions that you can ask your spouse from it. Awesome. Let's just check in. Everyone yeah. listening, thank you for just joining us. That is licensed marriage and family therapist Thomas Schmier from the organization Healing in Peace. He does incredible work in therapy, and you're listening to Trending with Timory. So there's a list of nine questions that you ask your spouse, and you show your spouse that you understand. You can say, I, you have to mean what you're saying, and you say, oh, I can see how, the way you're thinking about this and how, how you feel. Uh, but here are the questions you ask your spouse, and then your spouse asks you the same questions in return. So one question is, is there a story behind this for you? Or does this relate to your background or childhood history in some way? So that's something when you're arguing, you're not going to be going, oh, you know, I just want you to know this really hurts because it's from my childhood. You know, you're just, we're not right. going to that level where we're usually blaming and or 
like you said, stonewalling. Right. So you're showing there may be more context and we need to ask if there's more context mm-hmm. as to why maybe this is triggering someone in exactly. modern language. Yeah. And it, and it requires the speaker to be vulnerable, the one who's answering the question, which changes the whole tone of the conversation. Excellent. And another question, what would be your ideal dream here? The reason it's called dreams within conflict, this intervention is because underneath the conflict are dreams and we have competing dreams that are butting heads against one another. Mm -hmm. So by asking what would be your ideal dream, we know it's fantasy, but here's how I wish it would be. You know, I I wish I could just do dishes my way Mm -hmm. because then blah, 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 blah. And maybe you hear a little nuance you didn't hear before. And you understand your spouse a little bit. Or better. it might even be, I wish you just did the dishes, yeah, right? Just like, do them completely. Uh, you just someone else did. Yeah. <laughs> there are certain things we don't like, right? Exactly. And, but different things. Or also, I wish you responded in this way. I wish your mm. attitude about this was different. Right. I wish maybe you were easier going in the circumstance. That's right. Let's do dishes every three days. That's my ideal <laughs> oh, dream. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, last question. Is there a fear or disaster scenario in not having this dream honored? And so we have lots of disaster scenarios, I think, when we're getting into gridlock. You know, um, I remember once um, I didn't kill a lizard that got into our house because my wife didn't want me to kill it. She'd rather have me guide it outside. And I, and, <laughs> and I didn't kill it against my own will. And, and then my disaster scenario was tonight when I'm sleeping, it's going to seek heat and it's, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be sleeping right next to me. And I just ha- locked into that picture and scared myself about it. But thankfully I'm a therapist. I know about these things and I was able to try to calm myself and say, that's very unlikely. That's irrational. And, and things turned out, but we do, we, we create these uh, disaster scenarios. And for these ourselves. are silly examples, whether it's the dishes or the lizard, yeah. like no real danger. But for some people, there might be a childhood memory mm-hmm. or there might be a legitimate phobia or something where they see the possible outcome is really dangerous, detrimental, unstable for them. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's a gridlock there. Yeah, something like fear of abandonment or something like that. Really serious stuff. You're right. I would love to get your thoughts on another question. We have about a minute and a half here before we run into our next segment. Can you help channel adolescent boys' risky behavior due to their stages of brain development? So you know all about this. Young boys, especially during that teenage years or even younger, can be really risky because of how their brain is developing and leads them a little bit more so toward recklessness. How can this be channeled? So I think we need to differentiate between normal risky behavior and abnormal risky behavior and so things like um like i did when i was a kid skateboarding trying to go on a half pipe and you don't really know what you're doing and um you know breaking the neighbor's window uh because the board went flying off the half pipe uh that's kind of normal teenage whatever you know so so what you do is you just if if they end up with broken bones and this and that take them to the hospital and then you get them cast on no big deal but the stuff that i would think a parent's worried about is drunkenness um teenage pregnancy happening secrecy yeah Yeah. really really bad stuff and for that i I think we need to um just it's, it's not a simple thing but we need to get the discipline in order to get mom and dad both on board and um say no to a lot of the things 
situations that would get them in trouble. And also throughout there, I think this question is a great question because I think part of it has to do with this kind of zero tolerance policy on young boys where they can't be as hyperactive as they should be. And so sometimes that they're not allowed to really move around. And so they take risks in areas that they probably shouldn't because of this need to move around is being stifled within so many of the school systems that they're in. Yeah, I agree with you. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Coming up a little later on, we'll be diving into the topic one person asked of how do you stay attracted to your spouse? With me today is licensed marriage and family therapist, Thomas Schmier. I want to dive into another question surrounding marriage here in a minute, but I want to also come back to, you know, the question earlier about how you can really work to be preventative from causing problems down the road. I think this comes back to a really key thing also of living intentionally. Sometimes I think we can be so unintentional and we'll dive into the question later about how do you stay attracted to your spouse? We have to be intentional. I think sometimes familiarity makes us too comfortable. And so as we're talking about marriage, we have to get over that familiarity. Familiarity can be a good thing, but it can make us too comfortable sometimes. Yeah, I agree with you. So I want to get into this next question. And I think that this is a really good one that you and I have touched on before as well as where am I getting gratification outside of marriage? And how is this problematic for maybe how my spouse is beginning to behave? Because that seeking gratification is taking place in multiple areas. Right. And to address this, I wanted to talk about the four attachment styles with I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the attachment styles, so I'll just go over that quickly. So there are only four attachment styles, and they are anxious preoccupied, avoidant dismissive, fearful avoidant, and secure. Now, the first three are the kind we don't want to have, and secure is the only one we should be really wanting to have. So can you give us examples of each? So starting with the anxious. Yeah, the anxious preoccupied, a lot of times we call these people needy in relationships, as in they, they need too much, they ask for too much. They're, they're very anxious, uh, mis- mistrustful, you might say. They attempt to control the spouse and they try to find closeness by addressing conflict all the time. Mm. Um, they create emotional emergencies. They might text their spouse like 30 times a day while their spouse is, trying, is at work trying to get the work done. And uh, the reception of the replies to text messages and phone calls is a way that they get gratification. Mm-hmm. Great. So then the second one having to do with avoidance. So th- this is really right on target for what we're trying to talk about here, which is how are we finding gratification outside of the relationship? The avoidant dismissive attachment style is doing exactly that. They suppress their emotions. They're dismissive of emotions. They find a way to avoid the relationship by working too much or it could be alcoholism or they're just a, a fanatical uh, sports fan. Uh, that, I know that was redundant. Or maybe distracting themselves with their children even to with, a certain could, extent. Yeah, 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 exactly. Friends and coworkers, right? Anything but your spouse. Uh, affairs, going clubbing or even ministries or charity work. 
uh, or having obsessive hobbies. Right, like you, whether it be something such as a specific sport, reading, exercise, all of these things can be intentional distractions that they're bringing in to find affection, not even affection, but just yeah. uh, putting themselves into something, right? That's right, because intimacy, emotional intimacy in the, in the marriage is is about one person giving up a lot for that one person. Right. Now, the next one you said is fearful avoidance. Mm-hmm. Fearful avoidance is a mix of the other two. It's based in low self-esteem. So it's uh, a mistrustful way of looking at the world and looking at your spouse. So it's, uh, again, mistrustful like the anxious preoccupied, but mistrustful because I'm not worth loving, but also people don't love, people are not caring anyway. So let's dive into that level of security, which is where people need to be, but maybe they don't know how to get there because they're experiencing, you know, this fearfulness, this anxiousness, this avoidance. Someone who's secure is going to have a life of mature service, but not at the neglect of their self. So they take themselves seriously, but also take their spouse seriously. They're not needy, but they have that health or healthy interdependence so they can receive. They get what they can, but also they grieve what they can't. And I'm using a strong word, grieve. It's not necessarily grieving, but you just kind of let things go. If I can't get it, I can't get it. I'm really looking forward to our next episode together where we're going to get into this trend of adulting or adult when necessary that a lot of millennials, I mean, 35, 36 year olds are only doing the adult thing when absolutely necessary. But this kind of ties into it in a sense. And I was reading something recently and it was talking about how in reality, as you become an adult, you no longer become the center of of the relationship. You learn how to give yourself to another person as you mature. And if we're looking at these four attachment styles, the first three that are wrong in this anxiousness, this avoidance, this fearfulness is you're putting yourself too much at the center of that relationship that you're only concerned about your fears, your comfort, your anxiety. You're not growing into a mature relationship in that security. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The secure attachment would fit with being a true adult. And again, it's not I, guess I shouldn't say again because I didn't say this before. The, the reason we have our attachment styles has a lot to do with our childhood and how we were raised and how our parents' attachment style was and how their attachment to us was or were. So, I, you know, we're not blaming people for their attachment style, but you can work on it and you can change. So what do you see some of the biggest challenges of, that, of questions that come to you having to do with marital issues? What questions? Yeah, like challenges and challenging circumstances that you see most common right now. It could be anything. It could it could be a husband who's spending too much time with uh, with another woman, you know, and won't won't stop doing it. It could be, I guess, I'm husband <laughs> husband who's drinking too much, uh, you know, being drunk around the kids, stuff like that. Sometimes you have a woman who's too mistrustful. And uh, she's just really suspicious that her husband's cheating when he, there's not really good evidence that he is. Uh, just uh, different things like that. And then there's also the, what I talked about before about these gridlock perpetual problems. That's very, very common. Mm-hmm. And it could be finances. That could be whatever your, your key issue is. Right. Could you give more insight into kind of overcoming those gridlock circumstances? Because we touched on them a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes in the heat of it, so you were saying earlier, like pull back, walk away from it. Allow yourself to come back later, ask questions like, how, how does this have to do with your family? What else would you recommend for something that a problem that's been going on long term? Maybe you're starting to try to implement these questions, trying to ask, well, what are, what's the best case scenario? What's the fear here? What if this is you're just starting to try to address this and change the behavior to a healthy dynamic? Mm-hmm. 
What is your advice for that person who's trying to implement this? Who's trying to have the dreams within conflict uh, intervention. Right. And they're just beginning to change their, their pattern on something they're gridlocked on. Yeah, because it's a yeah. pattern that's habitual for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. So the thing that you're arguing about, you don't have to change. That, that's the beautiful thing. Um, so let's say one person's Catholic and church going, and the other person is not Catholic, and they really complain. They don't want to go to church, and they don't want to raise the children that way. Well, at some point, you have to accept you married a non-Catholic, and so no one needs to change. But it's just the way we talk about it. That's, that's what we need to do is, like you said, sometimes we need to calm down. Uh, we have to have ways to calm down, whether it's prayer, could be um, praying a rosary, going to the uh, Eucharistic adoration, uh, reading the Bible, something. Getting out of the house, going for Getting, a walk, going, for going a walk. Into exercising. Yeah, anything. Uh, get yourself calm and stay calm. Mm-hmm. And then when you come in to talk about what the, the key issue, listen generously. Show, don't be there to tell your side of the story. As soon as you start getting into, I have to tell my side of the story, I have to be understood, you're already, what we say, triggered. You're already getting flooded, and you probably need to go calm down again. Mm-hmm. Go take a break. And part of this can also be adrenaline kicking in, right? Oh, that's what it is. <laughs> so, so when we say triggered and or use this word flooded, we're talking about adrenaline. Your heart rate goes up to right. 100 beats per minute. Uh, your blood oxygen concentration goes down below 95%. You're not even getting enough oxygen to your brain to listen generously. Mm-hmm. So this is even where just taking a couple of deep breaths yeah. can be helpful. And it seems so I, in clinical at a certain point where, you know, in reality, is this going to happen? Actually, if you start to develop the skill of walking mm-hmm. away, pulling back so that you can have a healthier outcome to this disagreement or mm-hmm. prevent greater disagreements from happening down the road, it, it really allows for that clarity. Because when your heart rates up, when you've got that adrenaline mm-hmm. and even just going and exercising for a bit, going for a walk, you yeah. know, go water the plants, whatever <laughs> it might be. Yeah. What other advice would you have in these circumstances as they're starting to work on these good habits? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I want to clarify, it's not just walking away. Right. It's how you walk away. Mm. Because if you walk away, that's called stonewalling. That's right. an unhealthy habit. Uh, so we do need to say, I'm going to take a break for 20 minutes. We can talk about this later. And we will. And we will. Yeah. And make sure you come back to well, it. Well, and this gets back into the male-female dynamic, because in a lot of cases, you can speak greatly to this. For women, they need that affirmation. So if he's just going to walk away, mm-hmm. she's probably going to chase him down the hall, because now yeah. she's afraid at this point that the conflict's not being resolved, especially with the way women think. And so how men have to assure, I am going to talk to you about this in 20 minutes, and actually follow up and not try to avoid it at the end of that 20 minutes because maybe things have cooled down now yeah that's right and the men it's it's not always man versus female and these are stereotypes but generally uh the woman is the chaser the man is the withdrawer Mm -hmm. and so the man has a fear of annihilation of the woman you could say enmeshment like the woman basically having to become the woman she won't let me be me so i need to get away and the woman has a fear of abandonment a lot of times. And so being reassured that he'll be back in 20 to 60 minutes and we will talk about this again is huge for helping her to relax. We were just before the show talking about teenage development. Much of kind of the man walking away, that stereotype is also common to what you see in teenagers. Well, how do you allow them to have that space at the same time as chasing down the issue that needs to be touched on? 
Yeah, you do need to let them have their space. Absolutely. And if they, if they need time, you have to give them give them time. And that's where it takes both parents. You can decide should should we go talk to our teen, or maybe or, one of us or goes. Maybe in. one of us goes, or maybe we wait a little while, and you can kind of strategize together. But don't just automatically be chasing down your teen and dealing with things urgently. That's marriage and family therapist Thomas Schmier. He'll be back. We'll be diving deeper into more questions. We'll also be talking about some contraband books that have been removed from Amazon and much more. We'll be right back on trending. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Hello, hello, everyone. I am in studio with Thomas Schmier, and we've been talking about preventative medicine for marriages. Coming up, we'll be talking about how to stay attracted to your spouse and also ideas for date night. So marriage and family therapist Thomas Schmier is in studio with me. Thomas, in some of your work, you touch on some very, very controversial issues. Not only do you bring faith and morality into your work as a therapist, which is so important, but also you have been involved in helping uh, assist people who experience same-sex attraction, who want to really reintegrate into the society in a way that um, they have found that their same-sex attraction has been prohibiting them, has been a burden. And so they are seeking often healing and guidance through psychological therapy in their journey. Can you speak a little bit to this? Sure. And I have to say, I'm afraid to talk about this because I've gotten letters from lawyers. So I want to start with a disclaimer. Right now, I am not confirming or denying that I treat men with unwanted same-sex attraction. I will talk about my history. Right. <laughs> and in uh, February of 2015, uh, a letter was written, written by the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest uh, organization for defending the rights of LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And they wrote a letter to Psychology Today with my name on it, asking them to remove me from their therapist referral, claiming that I was advertising that I was treating minors for same-sex attraction in the state of California when that was illegal. Which is illegal in the state of California. And this is what's interesting. For those who don't know, we've talked about it here on Trending. It is illegal in the state of California and a handful of other states in the United States that if a minor comes in with an unwanted same-sex attraction, that it is wrong for you to do any type of counseling that wouldn't outright affirm their same-sex attraction. So right now the protocol is, is that if a child comes in and experiences same-sex attraction, you have to affirm and almost to the point where you actually encourage certain same-sex activities. It's not almost. It's absolute. <laughs> yeah. It's absolute. Yeah, and right. I mean, this is really scary, you guys, because if we were to look at the increase in sexually transmitted diseases, harmful behavior, diving into suicide, teen depression within that lifestyle, we would never be recommending, especially a teen adolescent who's looking at taking riskier behavior Mm -hmm. to engage in this type of lifestyle that's harmful. I mean, their brain's still developing. It's a huge part of this. And it blows my mind that the the entity that contacted Psychology Today was called the Human Rights Campaign. Mm -hmm. So this is my question. Is it a human rights violation for an adult to be able to choose who they want to go to for therapy and what goal they want to have? 
Yes. And this is where we have to start with it. It is perfectly legal for adults to choose the type of therapies that they receive. Mm -hmm. And that being said, you know, we're getting into a realm where many people refer to this as conversion therapy. It's not conversion therapy. And in fact, it has nothing to do with conversion therapy. And you're speaking directly to this. For those who haven't heard the episode, I really want to recommend it. I had Michael Gasparro, who you've worked with a little bit in the Mm -hmm. past, who's also trained under Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. We're going to get to his books in just a minute here. But there's a difference between what some people try to say is conversion and almost like an indoctrination right. type of mindset that has been wrongfully done. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between that and things such as recognizing that you are a human being with free will and you also may have certain Things that have impacted you, such as sexual molestation and abuse, such as a sexual addiction, such as obsessive compulsive disorder and other things, parental issues that need to be healed and worked through. Exactly. And uh, what we find is that those things are underneath the homosexual attraction and that for some reason, uh, when we heal those traumas, the desire to engage in some illicit homosexual activity uh, is reduced. Reduced. And that's the byproduct. It's the byproduct. So essentially yeah. you're helping to heal and address sexual molestation, sexual addiction, pornography addiction, you name it. Right. And when we get this kind of equilibrium again, this rebalancing, this mm-hmm. healing, because anyone who's listening and has experienced any of these traumas will know that they are creating stuntedness in terms of friendships, relationships with family members, Mm -hmm. even just bad habits of behavior. So how could we not see that it might be impacting a sexual desire that we know is statistically and theologically, I mean, we could dive into it, harmful Mm -hmm. for the human body. Right. And I do want to make a distinction between the desire and the acting on the desire. I mean, if someone's comfortable with that, they have same sex attraction and it's not very intense and they don't want to go to therapy for it, and they're not engaging in sexual activity, fine, fine. No, no big deal at all. But it's when you're acting on the homosexuality, that's when the church, first of all, would have a problem with it. Uh, but also when it's, it's harmful to you and harmful to the person you're doing it right. with. And this is the beauty of the church's teaching. It says that any person is called to chastity given your state in life. And so just as a single person, as a married person, we are all called to chastity according to our state. A priest is called to be faithful to priestly orders of celibacy, right? Right. Those promises that are made. I mean, as a married couple, you're called to be faithful only to your spouse. As a single person, you're not allowed to engage in sexual intimacy with anyone besides a spouse when that occurs, if that occurs. And so the beauty of the church's teaching on chastity is actually so respectful to the person with same-sex attraction because it's not calling them to anything that it's not calling others to. And it is not a human rights violation to help someone to lead a chaste lifestyle. Uh, I want to add on to this that this is something we don't hear too much on, you know, you could say Catholic radio, I hate to say, but, you know, we're passionate about this and we get so angry. I just ran into my microphone. I'm so passionate. (laughs) And But what we don't do is try to show that we understand when someone is acting out homosexually and where that comes from and that it's very difficult to give up the romantic fantasy, Mm. to give up. You know, a lot of us want to have that one person that we are attached to for the rest of our lives. And they're no different. 
and they happen to be drawn to someone of the same sex. So it's really a courageous act to say, no, I'm going to give up that romantic fantasy and lead a chaste lifestyle. Mm. I think that what's important is we're looking at this. People get so wrapped up into the same-sex issue, and I, I think we see two spectrums. One, where people can be hateful in their condemnation, and that's not Christian, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, where people can be so empathetic to the point that suddenly they approve it. And you made an important distinction. It's a lifestyle. Gay is a lifestyle. A gay is not an identity. So there are many, many people who have experienced same-sex attraction who have not acted out on it or choosing not to act out on it. And this is where we recognize that the importance of being free, mm-hmm. we are human beings with intellect and free will, right. and you can choose a behavior or you can avoid a certain behavior. And that's what's at the heart of this whole debate over choosing the types of treatment that allow you to conform with your faith. Mm-hmm. Recognizing right. that freedom is fundamental to the human person. And there are psychological factors that can make someone less free. And therefore, they're acting almost against their own beliefs, their own will, and engaging in acts they don't want to engage in. And then they need the help of a licensed therapist. And so I think it's a human rights violation to stop someone from having access to that kind of thing. And this is what we've been fighting here in the state of California and some of the laws that have come down. And unfortunately, we're at the place where specifically children, we're forced to encourage them into a same-sex lifestyle. In fact, it's unqualified counselors who are encouraging children in the public school systems into a same-sex exploration, experimentation, and even ushering them into that community, which is so problematic. It's really sad because as children, we don't need to even be thinking much about sexual activity other than mom and dad, you know, men and women get married and they have children. I was going to say, that's like, too much for some you know. people too. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> don't make them think about mom and dad. Right. Yeah, not, not my mom and dad. <laughs> but we, we don't need to be thinking about it. We need to be playing. We need to be in the sandbox. We need to be on the playground playing this or that, hopscotch or basketball or something. Why are we putting these ideas into someone's head so young it's not that's that's a human rights violation right you're listening to trending with timory that's at marriage and family therapist thomas schmier i want to touch on something i mentioned there's some contraband books on amazon right now in <laughs> fact you know what we've been talking a lot about these contraband books for a couple months now i've had your colleague michael gasparo on dr joseph nicolosi has been key for gosh over 30 years now and working with people who experience same-sex attraction unwantedly experience same-sex attraction. People try to call him kind of the king of conversion therapy. He's always worked at what is referred to as reintegrative therapy. Let's heal the sexual molestation, the OCD, the um, sex addiction, and the byproduct people are able to reintegrate and overcome tendencies that they don't want, bad habits that we tend to have. And so he has multiple books out on the market, one of which has been a book that I have been working through. is It's called A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. Uh, and so it really dives into this whole transgender issue as well, where a child is having essentially um, is not identifying with their sex, biological sex. And so this can be recognized at a very, very young age. Now, what's sad is that there's a lot of science, a lot of credibility behind this. And yeah, organizations have tried to silence you, Thomas, and they've gotten to the point where one person complains loud enough and all of the incredible medical textbooks in psychology of Dr. Joseph Nicolosi has been removed from Amazon this month. Yes, it's amazing. If you do a search on the type of therapy that he created, 
and I'm talking about Dr. Joseph Nicolosi Sr., if you type in reparative therapy on Amazon, now you don't get his books. You get the books talking against it. Mostly. This This, is banning. This is scary because that's a point. It reminds me of Nazi Germany and World War II. And one of the big things they did is they removed all of the textbook and the learning and the education that was contrary to their agenda. We need to be able to have a public debate, a public conversation, and hear opposing views. Yes. And if you go to Amazon and you search for the book Mein Kampf from Adolf Hitler, you will find it on Amazon. But you will not find the books from Dr. Nicolosi. That's how powerful the LGBTQ community is and how ruthless they are. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Hello, hello. Great to be back with you. We were just talking about the contraband on Amazon, Dr. Joseph Nicolosi's books that help people in understanding some of the psychology, the great research, and in fact, the testimony of hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of men and women who have experienced same-sex attraction. Dr. Joseph Nicolosi's books can still be found at this time on Barnes & Noble, among other places. So I really do actually recommend this specific book, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. It's to help understand the challenge of gender dysphoria, as it might be called. So please know that although they're not available on Amazon, you can find them other places online. In studio with me is actually a protege in many ways of Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, who's worked with him over the years in treating sexual addiction, uh, among many other things. Thomas Schmier is a marriage and family therapist, and he works with Healing and Peace. It's a Catholic therapy program uh, that integrates the two, psychology and Catholicism. That's right. So I want to dive into some more questions. People heard you were coming on and it's your ask a therapist time Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. So the next question still on this marriage theme from Aaron is what can married couples do for a date night? Okay. So I have my answer for this, but you're married. What do you do for your date night? You know, I love this question because when it first came up, you know, I see that overall, the whole issue of still dating your spouse, you know, a lot of people become comfortable, like we discussed earlier. And I see other people, as they start to have children, they still do fun things. They enjoy life, but they take their kids with them. And then other people have this attitude is that I just have to be Mm -hmm. home. I can't do anything Mm -hmm. anymore. And I think it starts with overcoming that attitude and even recognizing economic means that even if you can't go out and do something like go to Disneyland in California, which can be very expensive, you can still go hiking. You can go bowling. You can do tons of free things that are fun. And so my husband and I love to cook together find new recipes. We love to go out and go hiking. You know, we've found season passes to, you know, a local zoo safari park that are great. You know, we find things that we enjoy doing that are simpler. Uh, But I think that, Entering into the economic element, though, is important to consider when looking at this as well. I agree with you. And th- those are great ones. Those were on my list. So it's good. The, the therapist approved. <laughs> awesome. And I know you're quite the hiker as well. <laughs> yeah, I like to hike. We, that's what my wife and I do. Uh, one of the things we do. Doctors Gottman, because uh, Dr. John Gottman and his wife, Julia, are both uh, psychologists. And he's probably the best, uh, well, he's, he's the best researcher on marriage and family therapy in the world. And what they did 
when they were dating before they were married, they liked to go to fancy hotels. And since they couldn't afford to stay at the hotel, they'd pretend they were staying at the hotel. <laughs> and they'd sit in the lobby and maybe order a glass of wine or something and just have a date. And they'd sit there and talk to each other and learn about one another. And I think that'd be a great thing, something along these lines for a couple who's been married 10, 20 years to get that fire lit again as if you're dating again and explore what's going on with one another and understand, uh, create a map of the mind of your spouse. Get to know them. Well, and maybe even think about what they used to like to do, what they still yeah. like to do, what yeah. they maybe complain about. Because I find sometimes in a complaint is the answer, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Underneath, uh, underneath anger is a need, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, like, okay, we're scheduling our time too much. We're always so busy, Mm -hmm. right? Well, maybe that means you need to step back. Maybe you just need to have a time at home, right? Be able to watch a movie. And I think that busyness is actually what gets in the way of married, quote unquote, date nights is we're so busy. So unless we schedule time in and we're intentional, it'll never happen. That's right. That's right. I want to finish up the list here. We have, uh, on mine, I had uh, kayaking, mini golf. I think you said bowling. Did you say bowling? Yeah, I mentioned bowling. Yeah. Uh, dinner, that's a, kind of a standard for everyone, I think. But another inexpensive one is a picnic. Just make right. the food at home. And it'd be great if the man made the food <laughs> and, and took his wife on a picnic. I mean, I think that'd be very romantic. And then, uh, of course, you can go to a movie or play a board game. But you can also... Oh, we love board games. Yeah, board game. There you go. And you can also have a, a less of a date, a less a feel of a date, but... Let's talk about the marriage. Let's set two hours aside and let's talk about the state of the marriage. And when you do that, uh, what Dr. Gottman recommends is start off with give one another five compliments before you do anything. Get that ratio of positive to negative interaction. You always want to keep it uh, at least five to one. And strangely, he's noticed uh, from his research, if it's four to one, forget it. It's not going to go well. It has to be five to one or higher meaning you need to have five compliments for every criticism? Um, Just positive interactions. Positive interaction for every negative interaction. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, and this is where I think things such as the five love languages is so Mm -hmm. helpful. Gary Chapman, right? Mm -hmm. I think five love languages, if you've not read it, excellent. Even for understanding five love languages is in relation to your children as well is really important for understanding, you know, there's certain ways that people need to be loved and there's certain ways that we feel we need to be loved as well. And so implementing these into our daily interactions yeah, and I think the best way to find out what your spouse loves and, and hold on to your seats here, this is profound, is ask them. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have men who are, you know, working so hard at their jobs, working long hours, and they expect their wife to be happy, you know, because she has money for what she wants and she's not happy. She feels neglected. She, she wants quality time. She wants quality for time. She wants yeah. quality time. And so, and he might, maybe he, his, love languages, acts of service. And so she's upset with him because she's not getting quality time. So maybe she's intentionally not making a meal. You know, we could mm-hmm. go into this whole spike cycle of unhealthiness. And Dr. Right. Chapman, I know you talk about this as well as how do we regain and choose? One of us has to choose to change the pattern. That's right. And often when we choose to change the pattern on any of these issues, us changing the pattern eventually ends up impacting how the other person interacts with us. Always. I mean, even if we, and this is 
going a little bit on a tangent, but if we improve our spiritual life, mm. if we get our a spiritual director and the spiritual director starts telling us a few things we can do to improve our spiritual life, wow, all of a sudden our marriage works out a little better. Excellent. That's Thomas Schmier. You were listening to Trending with Timmer. I want to get into another question here coming from Erica. How do you stay attracted to your spouse? So as a therapist, I'm supposed to be empathetic. People expect me to be empathetic and I have to be honest here, though. When I first read the question, I thought, how do you not be attracted to your <laughs> spouse? And I'm trying to think, what is it about me and my wife that I can't even think of not being attracted to her? Yeah. So that helps me try to understand uh, Eric here. And so, you know, just questions. I, ne- I need to know more. I need to know what's the problem So here. there's more going on in this just, context. Yeah, I, I would think. So I was wondering, is he thinking of his wife as an object for use? She must give me satisfaction, that feeling of attraction and mm-hmm. feeling attracted to her feels good for me. I, I don't know. Could could be. Or is his wife letting herself go? Mm-hmm. Uh, or vice versa. Or, or right. vice versa, but he's the one er, right, asking er, the yeah, question. Yeah. Yeah. Or is she undergoing the normal aging process and he's finding her less attractive? I don't know. But all those things sound like she's an object for use. She's here for my gratification, mm-hmm. which would be fundamentally the wrong way of looking at it. And I don't know if that's what's going on here or not. Um, so the idea is, are we reducing her in, a, in the wrong way of using the term reduce? Are we reducing our wives to just objects of use uh, who need to look good? Right. And, or are we seeing them as a person? Am I attracted to the person? I like that. And we don't want to lose sight of the whole person. The looks are one part of the whole person. So maybe there's a reason here this person, Eric, is not attracted to her as a person. Then we have a deeper issue. Well, and that might have been, I think, at the heart sometimes of the whole attraction debate. People reduce attraction to looks, but attraction looks are just the superficial element. Ultimately, you should be attracted to their character to their humor to them as a person more deep than just physical attraction but maybe that attraction that has dissipated has nothing to do with looks and maybe it's i'm not attracted to the ugly within you that's coming out right and so maybe that's hitting maybe what's going on is there's some sort of behavior that's an issue and that's where maybe we need to communicate like hey this is something that's going on a behavior and it's concerning me and i'm reacting in a negative way to it yeah sometimes we need to say something and then other times the person who's worried about the other person not being attractive is actually critical Mm -hmm. and they actually pick people apart. And if they don't pick people in general apart, they pick their spouse apart. So how do you work on overcoming being overly critical of people in general, especially your spouse? Well, when it's your spouse, there's actually a term for it. It's called ROCD. And uh, some people define it would say this is ROCD, Relationship Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Mm. It's an informal diagnosis. So you won't find it in the the formal uh, book of diagnosing. But relationship OCD can be you you find some kind of fault in your spouse and you just start obsessing about it and you're making you're making it into way too big of a deal. So it could be something about your spouse's morals. And so I can't trust my spouse because uh, 15 years ago, she looked up uh, her old boyfriend and the internet browser. You know, or 15 and, years ago, they spent too much money on a car and I can never m- trust them again right. to make financial yeah, decisions. Yes, something, something like that. So just 
some kind of character flaw or they can latch onto the looks and oh boy you know she just gained a little bit of weight and i just don't know if i can engage in the marital embrace with her anymore she's gaining weight because she doesn't love me so what can people do to overcome this because it's an oath yeah. form of ocd within their relationship yeah. i really think they need to see a therapist when it's that extreme mm-hmm. and and if not a psychiatrist and uh, medication can also help in that country. so this is where i think a good recommendation there are certain questions that can't just be answered on a simple question mm. on a show or through research but going to catholictherapist.com is an excellent resource for finding a catholic therapist who's in line with your faith but also doesn't go too far in terms of psychological ideas that do not conform with reality and that's a real danger sometimes in catholic therapy so check out catholictherapist.com this has been trending with timory to book her to speak or learn more about her guests Visit Radiotrending.com. That's Radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes.